I thought I'd see him here this morning, but I, I talked to Marv Stetler, and he thought he'd be here. Maybe he'll be in the second service. But our buddy Marv woke up uh, the week before last on the living room floor. He passed out, but he could just as easily have passed away. Marty got him to the hospital, and it wasn't long before they transferred him to a bigger hospital to undergo a heart cath. When the doctors saw the results, they immediately inserted two stents and then arranged a follow-up session to insert two more. And then when Marv came home and saw his primary care physician again, he was told that he was lucky to be alive. Apparently, there were four different places in his heart where the arteries were 90% blocked. When he fainted, uh, the doctor told him it was because his, he wasn't getting enough blood through those blocked arteries to keep him going. And so his doctor told him he was lucky. It's a wonder that he's still alive. Prior to the moment when Marv woke up on the floor, he had no idea that anything was wrong. They say what you don't know can't hurt you, but I think Marvin Marty would beg to disagree. What you don't know can kill you. In the spiritual life, what you don't know can also wreak havoc. Ignorance is not bliss. It's just ignorance. The biblical writers highly value knowledge, but not as an end in itself. The Apostle Paul had no interest in knowledge for knowledge's sake. In fact, he thought of that as detrimental. He wanted people to know the truth so that they could act on the truth. For Marv, not knowing the truth about the condition of his arteries could have led to his death, but knowing about it now gives him a chance to do something. Knowing the truth of God's word affords us the same opportunity. God doesn't speak truth to us in the scriptures so that we can write books about it or read books about it or post it online or debate it in small groups. He speaks truth to us so that we can do something about it. Our text today begins with the Apostle Paul saying, don't you know, this is one of ten times in this letter that Paul asked that question. And at least half of those times, are in reference to the Corinthians' knowledge about their own identity as Christ followers. Could it really be that you don't know this? Don't you know who you are and what you are now that you've believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit? Now, this is not the first time Paul's reminded the Corinthians of their true identity and urged them to live up to it. This is who you are, now live it. That's a major theme with him. Do what you must do to be who you are. And who are you? If by the work of Christ for you and the work of God's Spirit in you, you're a Christian, then you're a member of the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 6.15. You are, together with your fellow church members, a temple for the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Your body is a dwelling place for the Spirit that lives in you and can interact with the world through you. That's 1 Corinthians 6.19. And 1 Corinthians 6.2, you're a future judge of the world. If you don't know these things and quite a few others in the Scriptures about yourself, like Marv didn't know certain things about himself, you are bound to make decisions that will be at cross purposes with your own best interests and with your own destiny. Ignorance of these things will hinder you from becoming your true self. Now, we've been reading through 1 Corinthians, trying to hear the letter read to us 
as the Corinthians might have heard it read to them. So sometimes we have read large sections, even a chapter at a time. But today we're going to slow down. We're going to slow way down. Today we're going to read just three verses. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. We're skipping, by the way, the first eight verses of this chapter. I've been preaching this this book um, expositorily. We're going through it one chapter at a time, but we're skipping those first eight verses because Kevin preached a powerful message on this text back in April. And I would encourage you to get on the website and listen to that sermon again as part of this current study in 1 Corinthians. You can find it. It was given on April 12, 2015, and was titled, Why Not Rather Be Wrong? That's the first eight verses of this chapter. Though I'm not going to spend any time in those verses, I do want to mention how they fit into the larger context of the letter and how they connect to both this week's and last week's texts. The first eight verses deal with the Corinthians' penchant for taking their grievances to civil court. That happened in Corinth and around the Greek world all the time. In fact, in one of the ancient Greek um, um, comedies, in a play by one of the ancient Greeks, a teacher is with his disciple and he asks him to point out Athens on a map. And his disciple points to the map and says, that's Athens. And his teacher says, that can't be Athens. I don't see any lawsuits going on. (laughs) People were suing each other constantly. And by the way, did you know that from 1998 until now, awards given in courts have multiplied geometrically. Our culture is right where their culture was 2,000 years ago. At any rate... Paul sees that as a result, and it disgusts him. And he sees it as a result of their pride. And that's one of those connections with the previous and latter texts. He's mentioned pride repeatedly, especially in chapters 4 and 5. But he also sees it as evidence that the Corinthians don't know, that they haven't understood their new identity as the people of God. And that's another connection to the surrounding passages. He brought that up specifically in chapter 5, and he's about to bring it up again in this chapter. So let's read our text, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. I'll be reading out of the NIV 2011 this time, so you can follow along on the screen. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul asks, almost in disbelief, or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? If they had known it, it seems as if they were in need of a reminder. Now, we come to a text like this, it's important that we don't remove it from its context and make its warning stand alone. This warning is given in a context, and it's important to see that. That's taking things out of their context like this. No way to understand scripture or any written document. It's also important to understand just what Paul means when he talks about inheriting the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
But it's most important to take what's said here seriously. This is a warning, not a theological curiosity. Paul is warning people, people he's already identified as the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is warning them of a real and potentially tragic loss. This warning is directed to Christians, not non-Christians. Don't allow theological assumptions to close your ears to a warning meant for you. Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, before we go on, we have to ask what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. I think when most of us read that, what we read is wrongdoers will not get into heaven. But is that what it says? Is that what it means to inherit the kingdom of God? Is that what Paul's first readers would have thought he was getting at? I think it's unwarranted to interpret the phrase inherit the kingdom as if it were synonymous with getting into heaven. As far as I can tell, there is no one-to-one correspondence between those concepts anywhere in the scripture. We know that you can go to a particular place, for example, your parents' house, even though you're not going to inherit that place. Maybe your brother will inherit instead of you. But if that's the case, you might still be able to go there, right? In fact, your brother might invite you to move in and share his home with him. Nevertheless, it's his inheritance. It's not yours. In the scriptures, the phrase inherit the kingdom means to come into full possession of it, which is a great honor, a great responsibility, and a great joy. The scriptures teach that the kingdom is present now. That's a fact we've seen established already in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And that we are a part of it, but we will not inherit it, not come into our full possession of it until Christ returns. And wrongdoers, Paul says, they're never going to come into full possession of it. The Corinthians had somehow got the idea into their heads that they'd already arrived, spiritually speaking. The kingdom was already their possession. Some of them believed that what they did on earth would not and could not affect their inheritance of the kingdom. And that idea was not limited to their day, was it? But regarding that idea, Paul says, do not be deceived. That's a warning that he issues over and over again, a dozen times in his letters. He repeats it often because he knows that there is a real danger that we will be deceived. And so the scriptures warn us, not just Paul, but the scriptures warn us not to be deceived or to deceive ourselves. It's said both ways. Not to be deceived into thinking that, let me list a few things the scriptures tell us not to be deceived about. Into thinking that we already know all we need to know. That's 1 Corinthians 3.8. That sin doesn't really matter. That's this passage. That we can somehow avoid reaping what we've sown. That's Galatians chapter 6. That we need something more or other than Christ in order to be okay. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. It's the first few verses of Colossians chapter 3, and it's practically the whole letter to the Galatians. That sin is something that happens to us rather than something that comes from within us. That's James chapter 1. And finally, James 1 again, that hearing and understanding God's word can somehow take the place of obeying his word. No wonder Paul says, do not be deceived. 
He knew that apart from the gracious intervention of God and the patient help of his people, we will be deceived. I don't care how smart you are. Apart from God's help, we will be deceived and probably are about some things right now. And the Corinthians were certainly deceived. They were trusting a theology that says sin doesn't really matter. So Paul sets them straight. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list. The first part of it deals with sexual behaviors that are harmful to people. Non-Christians, and at least non-Christians who are aggressively non-Christian, often take passages like this and use them to charge that Christians think that sex is dirty, or that Christians are afraid of sex, or that Christians hate sex. Of course, they never bothered to ask Christians if any of that is true. They don't bother to look at the statistics that show that Christians have a higher fertility rate than non-Christians. How could that be if Christians hate sex? I don't know. Or survey data that suggests that married couples have better sex life than non-married couples, which is just what Christians would expect. See, God invented sex. It was his idea. And we know it's a good one. But Christians also know that being his idea, he knows how sex ought to be treated. And he's placed boundaries around sex. For the same reason the electric company places boundaries around substations. Because sex is powerful. It can hurt people who use it wrongly. So Paul lists what some of those wrong ways are. First, there's sexual immorality. The sexually immoral. The Greek word is porneia. It's, we get our word pornography from this word. It is the most general of the words related to sexual sin. It just means sex outside marriage. Paul's going to have a lot more to say about this in the next few paragraphs. We won't get to those until next week. But let it suffice for now to say that sex outside marriage has caused endless trouble to individuals, to families, and to the world. It's an area of serious failure in the church and has been a major obstacle to the advance of the kingdom of God. The second word, idolaters, I thought this list was about sexual sins, this first part of the list. The second word, idolaters, is in this list of sexual sins because in the ancient world, idolatry was usually wrapped up with sexual misbehavior. Again, we'll see more about that later. Adulterers, are people who have sex with marriage partners, just not their own marriage partners. And next comes men who have sex with men, as the NIV 2011 puts it. The Greek uses two different words here. One to describe the, the passive male partner, the other to describe the active male partner in a same-sex relationship. It is extraordinarily unpopular, not to mention grossly politically incorrect, to say that the Bible regards same-sex sexual relationships to be outside God's will and opposed to it. Because of passages like this one, many people have left the church and some have rejected God altogether. And because of that, 
Well-meaning people have worked hard to find ways to interpret the biblical text, including this one, so that they allow Christians to be in a committed same-sex relationship. But look, the full weight of the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, is against it. Scholars have made some good points about how this word or that particular word could be taken differently, but this and that particular word are like raindrops in a downpour even if you can deflect them, even if these words could be translated in a more culturally sensitive way, it wouldn't change the whole tenor of Scripture. Now, before we go further, it's necessary to say this. The biblical teaching about sex, about sleeping around, don't limit it to homosexuality, about sleeping around, about adultery, about using people as sexual objects and about homosexuality is meant to help people live healthy and whole lives as sexual beings. The prohibitions that God gave are not arbitrary. He knows what will help individuals and whole societies flourish and what will hurt them. It's because he loves us that he sometimes says no to our desires. Now let's go on. Verse 10. We make a little change here. Verse 10 lists sins that are not sexual in nature. Paul mentions thieves. Now think pickpockets or shoplifters. The greedy who are addicted to having more, even at the expense of others. Drunkards, slanderers who are always trying to make people think badly of others. Swindlers. In today's climate, it's just natural to focus in on the sexual sins and particularly on the hot button issue of homosexuality either to use the text as a club to beat gay people or to misuse the text and explain its warnings away. But don't miss the fact that Paul did not focus in on any one kind of sin to the exclusion of others. He didn't send up one sin as more dishonorable than another. The sin du jour is just one item on a much bigger menu. Paul knew that there's one way that leads to God but many ways that lead from him. And he's just listed some of those ways. And he's warned us twice in the space of two verses that people who follow these ways will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's the surprise, verse 11. And that's what some of you were. Society thinks of the church as a place to find nice, moral, though often hypocritical people. Innocent people. Naive people. But Paul says, you were sexually immoral people. You're always sleeping around. You were cheating on your spouses. You were trying out same-sex relationships. You were stealing. You were making yourself rich at the expense of others. You were getting drunk. You were smearing the reputation of your friends and your enemies. I mean, what a church. It was made of people who'd done all kinds of shameful things. How would you like to belong to a church like that? Oh, that's right. You do. Guess what? Jesus followers have a past. Sometimes it's a past they're ashamed of. And sometimes it's a past that hasn't yet let them go. 
Our church, like the Corinthian church, has people who have been sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, and slanders, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. But as with the Corinthians, those things were our past. They may even be in our present, but by the grace of God, they will not be our future. Look at what Paul writes in verse 11. And that's what some of you were. But, and I'm going to read this as it is in the original language, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what you were. But that's not what you are. It's not that you turned over a new leaf or you got religion or anything like that. It's that you were changed by the work of Christ for you and by the work of the Spirit in you. You are fundamentally a different person now. God has altered your makeup at a foundational level, and that changes everything. You were grimy. Your soul was grubby. Sometimes your touch left dirt on other people, your spouse, your children, your coworkers, and you know it's true. But... Strong adversative in Greek. But you were washed. The blood of Christ, his death for you, washed you clean. You were a nobody. You didn't belong. You didn't mean anything. It was 70 or 80 years, get what pleasure you can out of life and then die. But you were sanctified. You were chosen, set apart for God himself, and made to belong to him and to his people. The Spirit of God made you his and gave you a purpose for living. You were guilty. Guilty as sin. Guilty of sin. There was no excuse. You were culpable, responsible, accountable, blameworthy. And then you were justified, acquitted, absolved. You were declared innocent. Now you will go to the judge of all the earth as one who has been pardoned in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you are if you're Christ's. Don't forget it. You are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified. Don't get hung up on who you were. Lean into who you are. Say with Kierkegaard, now with God's help, I shall become myself. And you will have God's help. How could you not? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now I want to close this time by briefly narrowing our focus to one of those sins, and I'm talking about gay sex. One of those sins mentioned in verse 9, and then we're going to pan out and include a wide-angle look at our lives. I want to do that by quoting Wesley Hill, a man who has lived with same-sex attraction since he was a teenager. This is what he's written. If you're someone living with homosexual feelings, Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. I do believe, he says, that discipleship to him entails giving up sex and gay relationships. And that may be, may be more painful than you can imagine right now, but ultimately, Jesus is offering you the kingdom. He's offering you eternal life. He's offering you himself in the gospel. 
Sacrificing your sexual freedom may seem like a high price to pay, and it is a high price. But he promises you a joy so stunningly great that if you felt the full weight of it now, you would literally come undone. Okay? That's what a young man with same-sex attraction has written. Now, let me expand that focus, but keep his words. If you're someone living with sexual desires that lead you outside the will of God into pornography or adultery or immorality, Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. If someone living with the insatiable drive for more and more, if you're that person, Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. If you're someone living with an addiction to alcohol or to drugs, Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. If you're someone living with an addiction to gossip and putting others down, Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. If you're someone living with sinful desires of any kind, and let me tell you, you are... Jesus' message to you is not primarily a no to your deepest hunger. Jesus is offering you the kingdom. He's offering you eternal life. He's offering you himself in the gospel. He promises you a joy so stunningly great that if you felt the full weight of it now, you would literally come undone. But you must say yes and keep saying yes to the new person God has made and is making you. And you must say no and keep saying no to the person you were but are no longer. You must, with God's help, become yourself. And you can become yourself because of the work of the Lord Jesus for you and the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Now I'm going to be quiet and we're going to bow our heads and listen to God in case he wants to say something further to us about this and then I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, you have made us new. We have not done it ourselves. We can't do it. It is through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that we've been washed. It's through the work of your spirit that we've been sanctified. It's by your own glorious grace that we've been justified. You have made us new, or we're not new at all. But we still need your help. Help us become who you've already made us. Those things that are clutching onto us from that old life, show us what they are and help us to take action. Those things that beckon us from the new life, Show us what they are and invite us forward for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray.